welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian Laura Zaro-Kopinski, and today I'm speaking with Catherine Osler about her new book, The Duchess Countess, The Woman Who Scandalized 18th Century London. Library Journal says of the book, Elizabeth Chudley was a glamorous celebrity in 18th century Europe. Her life bordered on the surreal, and this scrupulously documented biography packs in period details, historical context, and lots of juicy gossip. Determined Bridgerton fans will not be disappointed, and I agree. My guest, Catherine Osler, is an author and journalist who has been editor-in-chief of Tadler, the Evening Standard magazine, and editor of the Times Weekend. She's also written for a wide range of publications, including Vogue, Daily Mail London, and Newsweek. She read English at Oxford University, specializing in 18th century literature. Catherine, welcome. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's lovely to join you. Yes, I thought the book was so fascinating. I did not know anything um, about Elizabeth Chudley before this, and her life um, is definitely so interesting. And I loved being swept away to 18th century England, as I'm sure um, listeners will as well. Can you tell us more about the Duchess Countess? Sure. Well, it's 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 interesting. I hadn't heard of her either. I came across her in a book about Catherine the Great, actually, by Simon Seabag Montefiore, a, a wonderful book which you know I recommend. But and and he described this scene where this sort of he just sort of said this sort of fake duchess turns up in St. Petersburg and tries to be friends with Catherine the Great, and she's just left London in disgrace. And she's bought this yacht and she's painted her name on the side and she's having all these parties and sort of dancing and behaving outrageously. And I thought, well, who is this person? Can she really be real? And I started reading about her and I discovered that she was described at one point as one of the three most famous women in Europe in the 18th century, alongside Catherine the Great and Marie Antoinette. But these, you know, history's funny. These people are incredibly famous one minute and then the next minute they sort of fade from view. Um, But her fame rested not on power, but on scandal um, and notoriety. So she was born in 1721, a sort of Jane Austen type background, which sort of lots of connections, not much money, expectation not quite matching with the reality, very dependent on finding the right husband. And her father died when she was quite young. And through her connection, she managed to become a maid of honour at court to the Princess of Wales. It's sort of the most sought after kind of glamorous position you could possibly get. And I always think of it like a sort of Georgian gossip girl scenario where you've got all these <laughs> girls you need a husband market punctuated by sort of princes and prime ministers so and she had a disappointment she was going to she was engaged to someone whose family conspired to break them up because she didn't have a dowry and then she sort of on a whim married this very young very kind of brave impulsive but sort of appallingly behaved naval officer called Augustus Harvey, who would go on to be known as the English Casanova because he was such a rake. And they agreed to keep this wedding a secret because they were very young and they didn't have any money and they didn't really have permission. And it was all a bit sort of kind of, there was a lot of subterfuge going on. So they, and in the end, they sort of fell out with each other completely. And they agreed to lie, basically, that it never happened. And then she met the man who would be the love of her life, who was called the Duke of Kingston. And they got married. 
and they had this wonderful but very short marriage. And then afterwards, there's a lot more to it than this, but I won't go through all the ins and outs, but the, the, the sort of the absolute kind of most dramatic point of the story really is that his relations pursue her for bigamy in the hope of getting the money that he's left her back off her. Um, and so there is this 1776, height of the War of Independence. This enormous trial takes place in London in Westminster Hall, which is a sort of thousand-year-old room that leads you now into the House of Lords and the House of Commons in London. And 4,000 people come dressed in full kind of, you know, Bridgerton regalia, joy, jewels, <laughs> hairstyles, you, you name it, to watch this one woman who's a 55-year-old widow by then, although she's only admitting to 50, um, be humiliated in front of the ha- entire House of Lords. And that is the sort of scene that I kind of, I, I, that sort of most struck me when I began this book, this enormous trial, of which the whole British press, in fact, you know, journalists from all over Europe attend and this is the sort of it's a turning point in the book it's the sort of worst thing that happens but it's also she then has to recover from it if it was a movie we'd say it was the you know the worst of the worst well I was just gonna say one of the reviews I read said something like it's screaming for a Netflix adaptation (laughs) and I have to agree and I was thinking of oh I mean I would love to see come to life the the trial and I was sort of laughing reading um how as they were waiting <laughs> women oh. even like fallen through the rafters or something like just yes just seems uh um, I know it was bizarre I love that bit too so these two women they they're so excited about sort of so everybody gets in and because they want to get a good seat they arrive like way too early as people do and so 5 a.m they're all ramming themselves into, into the courtroom 8 a.m still nothing's happened and then they start hearing noises so everybody rushed to the end of the gallery to try and see if anybody was actually about to arrive. And then these two women fall off the end of the seating. And there's this terrible sort of contemporary description of one of them ending up, do you remember it says, with her bare bum stuck on someone's head. I mean, it's yes. sort of so ridiculous. But, but and the elaborate, the elaborate hair just kind yeah. of crumbling and everyone sort of seeing what was underneath. Um, yeah. yeah. The other thing I thought was so interesting, yeah. um, and you and you bring up in the book is how, as they're spending all of this time on her case and this trial, you know, they probably should have been talking about the American Revolution. Yes. Could you give us a little bit of sort of like the political context of the time that all of this was happening? Well, sure. So basically, it, it happens. The trial is in April 1776. So for context, it's 10 weeks before the Declaration of Independence. And it's sort of probably the last time historians have agreed now, really, that some sort of truce could have been negotiated. Um, so George III, who's the king at the time, wants to send um, the Howe brothers a naval and an army officer out to negotiate with George Washington to see whether they can reach some sort of agreement. Um, Now, the interesting thing about this, well, there are many interesting things about this, but 
he draws up, he doesn't really trust them to negotiate on their own. So he draws up, he wants to draw up a very exact list of things they're allowed to offer and things they aren't allowed to offer. Now, the lawyers who are in charge of this document, without which they can't go anywhere, um, are the actual lawyers who are in charge of Elizabeth's trial. So it sounds a bit bonkers, but she really did bring the War of Independence to a halt for a bit, because the people who were writing this document had to go and put her on trial instead. So the whole thing stops for two weeks, um, from the London side anyway. So... But the, the other interesting thing about it, you know, it may, may not have worked anyway. The result would, may well have been the same. But is I, I, I think that it was a kind of proxy war in a way, because on the face of it, it seems absolutely absurd that all these people who should be working out this huge geopolitical crisis are thinking about one woman's, you know, marital adventures, which in the scheme of things couldn't matter less. But... It was serving two purposes, really. One was distraction. And, and they really were the same people, by the way. So one of her witnesses is actually the Secretary of War. And another one is the sister of the Howe brothers. So when I say the same people, I really do mean the same people. Um, and as I, I mentioned, the lawyers earlier. But the thing is, it was an incredibly divisive. I sort of think we feel from here, perhaps, that everybody in England felt that America should stay a colony and everyone in America you know, wanted to be independent, but actually it was much more complicated than that. It was more like the Brexit debate we had over here. So Parliament, the House of Lords and English society were completely divided on the American question. They couldn't decide what to do. Half of Parliament felt, give these people their autonomy, they deserve it. You know, what, what, why would we want to hang on to this place so far away that we couldn't possibly control, even if we wanted to? And the other half thought people can't just, you know, these are British subjects. Why should they be able to do what they like? So it, it was very tense and it went on and on for years and nobody sort of ever changed their minds. And it got very unpleasant and everybody hated it in the end. They were some mixture of sort of passionate and bored and fed up and families divided over it. So they just wanted to think about something else. But I also think it was a kind of proxy battle in that here was a woman who just sort of was very well known, but kind of refused to abide by the rules. So I wrote in the introduction that in some ways she was like America. She stood up for herself and said, and she wouldn't be sort of judged by other people's rules. And it intrigued me that the people who tended to be on the side of independence were the people who were most sympathetic to her. Um, and oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, yeah, isn't it? One of the other things I really liked about reading this book is I'm always so interested to see what it would have been like in a different, to be a woman in a different era in a different place. And I've certainly read quite a few books that take place at this time, but sort of reading some of the legal ins and outs, I thought was interesting. I mean, we yes. know there's so many double standards at the time, but to see it so blatantly written out, like when they're talking about the possibility of a divorce from her first husband and just that it's officially on the law books that adultery by a woman is grounds for divorce. But adultery by a man is just, you know, 
by the husband is just, you know, not a big deal. And that isn't grounds for divorce. Just seeing things yes. like that written out is striking of kind of of the era. Could you talk more about um, how some of those just sort of the context of um, being a woman in that time, how it kind of led to her legal issues? Sure. I mean, it's interesting, this question, because they looked at things in such a different way. So we see the sort of inhumane nature of divorce. They saw it. They saw most things, actually. I mean, what was behind her bigamy trial was an inheritance battle. And what was behind their divorce rule was uh, inherit protection of inheritance. So their line was, doesn't matter if a man's unfaithful. But if a woman is unfaithful, you're putting in danger the estate of the husband because she, it might end up being inherited by someone who's not actually his child. And that for them was the priority, protect the inheritance. So it's a very sort of strange society that just puts other things above what we consider so important, you know, sort of human dignity, sort of lacks compassion, really, on a kind of personal level. They were very keen on, you know, there was also this sort of Christian attitude to marriage. It's the foundation of society, which is why to us, you know, bigamy, we think, well, it, you know, of course, it's bad marrying two people at once. Who wants that? But we we would think it wasn't, you know, it's not kind of grievous bodily harm or murder. It's, it's a sort of worse than an inconvenience because, but it's sort of, comes probably in the category of kind of terrible personal fraud or something. To them, it was an attack on the foundation of society. And that's why they would spend so much time and money and energy and why there was so much excitement about it and why 4,000 people would come and watch um, and why the punishment which she escaped was actually even you know as late as 1776, the punishment was to be branded on the hand so they, they would get a burning stamp and put a B on your hand so that everybody knew you were a bigamist. I mean, it was sort of medieval in that. Yeah, I was very surprised to, to read that. I thought that, you know, her inheritance would get taken away. But um, yeah, that part was was pretty shocking. And, um, you know, I felt like I did feel for her, too, at times, um, you know, as the law changed, that in her mind, she kind of thought, well, you know, if if the marriage had taken place, however many years later, it probably wouldn't have been valid. So it is all very gray. It's um, ambiguous, I agree. But uh, another thing on the divorce question was that aside from those, uh, you know, rules of divorce, which is a man could bring it. The other thing was, if in the rare occasion, a man did get divorced um, and he found, you know, the woman was completely ruined, you know, so even if she had managed to get a divorce, it's not clear that the person she loved, the Duke of Kingston, would have married her because occasionally it happened, but actually the disgrace around it was so intense. So it really was one rule of law, one world for women and one for men. Um, yeah. In other ways, too, in property ownership. Um Right. Really does read like a novel. I'm thinking about the, at the beginning, it definitely has sort of a Jane Austen feel. And then, you know, the love story with her and the Duke, it really does seem like they, um, you know, had a very genuine 
relationship. And I know that there were some references that uh, that Elizabeth Chudley inspired some literary characters. Could you talk about that a little bit? Because it does seem, you know, ripe for for a novel. Yes. Well, the mm. most the, the the person who was most inspired by her undoubtedly was Thackeray. So, in one of his the history of Henry Esmond, he made his heroine a um, maid of honor, and he uh, she's let down by the Duke of Hamilton. Um, which is what happened to Elizabeth. Her first broken engagement was with the Duke of Hamilton. And he portrays her very much, you know, even the physical description is like Elizabeth. Um, But Becky Sharp in Vanity Fair also owes a lot to Elizabeth. He he, he admitted that his books, he was so inspired by real life. And he wrote about her in his nonfiction. And he also mentions her by name in in The Luck of Barry Lyndon. But... Vanity Fair, you've got Becky Sharp. She's sort of part magic, part monster. You know, she's got no money. She speaks French. She has these parties. She marries an impoverished military person. She wants to trade him in for a titled man. She ends up going wandering through Europe. And Elizabeth tried to settle in Bavaria. In in, in Vanity Fair, he calls um, Becky settles in the place he calls Pumpernickel. But <laughs> and the other scene that really strikes me in Vanity Fair is that Elizabeth, in her youth, she's sort of tried to attract attention for various reasons, but there isn't really time to go into now. But she dresses up as a, as a person from classical myth, and she goes to a party wearing this very sort of skimpy outfit as a Phrygia, and she catches the attention of the king, who then wants to be her friend, and. Thackeray has Becky Sharp at a game of um, charades dressing up as a character from classical myth and catching the attention of the king. So, you know, there's the spirit of the person, which is they're a relentless social climber who's only looking after their own interests, but you can't take their your eyes off them anyway. And there's these wonderful details that he uses that he just sort of borrows, really. Um and that, well, she did want to live on. Maybe not like that, but she did want to live on. So. Yeah. Well, they're so, um, I, I was amazed at just how detailed the book is. And um, I would love to hear a little bit about your research process and how long it took you because there's just so much here. And also kind of what sources you found the most helpful for really immersing yourself in that mm-hmm. world. Okay, well, I'm I'm glad you, you know, it, it is a very detailed book. I'm afraid it took me far longer than it was meant to. I mean, it, it, between sort of signing contract and coming out was about four years. But um, in my defense, it did get put back because of COVID. So there's like sort of six or eight months that wasn't my fault in there. But it, I, I wanted to do two things. I wanted to tell her story, which in itself is, you know, extraordinary. As you say, you can't really believe that it's true, but it is all true. It's got so many sort of twists and turns. But I also wanted to, you know, they say you write the books you want to read. And I wanted to do a sort of time travel book where you could really hear the swish of the silk skirt on the marble. You know, I wanted to know, I wanted to smell it and know what it was like. And also to understand the politics you you can't really understand history unless you know where the power lies at that point. You know, who's sucking up to who and why and who controls what and who's 
in allegiance with who, you know, and in, in, in England, there are all these sort of tribes at the time. There's Whigs and Tories. There's alliances between people who come from the same county. There's sort of people who are pro the king, people pro the Prince of Wales. So I wanted to sort of untangle, you know, the politics and what they were eating and where they lived. And, and, and then she, after the trial, embarks on all these travels and starts sort of spending money like sand falling through her fingers she buys a chateau in France and she goes to Russia so I suppose three things one is luckily lots of her letters or letters about her survived because she became so famous one thing is lots of people at the time wrote about her so there was this glut of material around the trial newspapers people who kept diaries you know James Boswell Dr Johnson's biographer went um so there were lots of records like that royal records queen charlotte you know who we all know from bridgerton went to the trial even though she was two weeks off having a child and she took along the future um george the fourth and the future william the fourth and so there were lots of lots of coverages of part of her life and lots of letters many of which were in nottingham university and well actually they were all over the place but i also um went I got slightly obsessed with going to these places so I sort of climbed over a fence at a sort of derelict chateau in France to see what this house was like that she bought eight months before she died it was an enormous um enormous sort of impractical house it must have been very beautiful um but sort of she had grandiose ideas by then because she'd been in Russia where everything's kind of you know 20 signs the size of everything in England um I mean, the most moving, it was a sort of comedy. And there's also sort of amazing stuff you can find on the internet, to be honest, now that you couldn't a few years ago, like a whole load of sort of Estonian research from the farm that she bought there, which just hasn't been accessible to anyone before because, you know, the Estonian library wouldn't have been digitised and nobody's going to go there and rifle through things on the off chance. You know what I mean? So, but the most moving part actually was when I went to St. Petersburg um, by pure luck and chance, just as I was finishing up, they put an exhibition on of Potemkin, Catherine the Great's co-ruler and ex-lover um, of his belongings. And he had been great friends with her. And it turned out that lots of the things that she'd given him or that had been bequeathed to him were in this exhibition. So I went in, it must have been two years ago now, just before lockdown, December, sort of crunched through the snow. It was completely empty. And I saw this four-foot-high musical chandelier that used to hang in her ballroom in St. Petersburg, where she'd sort of fled after this trial. And it was just hanging in this glass box, perfectly preserved in the hermitage. Um enormous and what happened was you lit the candles and the whole chandelier would sort of spin round and play music and it was the most exquisite thing and I just couldn't believe it it was incredibly moving really because it was so over the top and it was so lavish and it was so shiny it was sort of it's got that feeling you get sometimes of a person you know it's like something of her has been left in these extraordinary objects it is amazing to to still be get to still be able to see some of those objects and 
um, mm. residences that that they're still available to be viewed. Yes. I love that. Really yes. helps transport you, I'm sure. I'm curious, did, I, I'm sure you sort of in your research kind of knew the general arc of her life and kind of knew what some of the twists and turns were going to be. But I'm curious if anything sort of um, really surprised you as you were researching and writing or if anything in particular really stands out or, or kind of sticks with you as you kind of move on to other projects now. Yes. Well, isn't it, I, I tell you what, is it the thing that stuck with me I suppose you get this wonderful sense of people when you're reading their letters you start seeing of course you slightly fall in love with them it's like that thing the more you get to know someone the harder it is to dislike you know I felt very compassionate towards her and I started seeing sort of themes in her life like she had this strange she had these strange sort of episodes where she would just sort of pass out cold whenever she saw somebody fainting and started wondering you know, what was what was that about? And I spoke to a psychiatrist and he said, um, he, he had various theories. And, I, you know, it's a question, can you sort of, is it a legitimate part of historical study to start applying what we now know to the past? You know, I don't know the answer to that question, but I found it a very interesting challenge to work out how far you know what what was wrong he had a theory she had borderline personality disorder basically which would explain her enormously attractive kind of byronic mad bad dangerous to know qualities but also her sort of terrible habit for spending too much money and not being able to stop eating and drinking and you know everything was excessive um i suppose so i i, I left with a very strong sense of person and also the other thing that stayed with me because people like I said about America people differed on what should happen at her trial is that the law we know this but a particular case that you study brings this into sort of cold relief is the sort of best current approximation of what's fair it's not kind of fair for all time. And it may be that in 10 or 50 or 100 years, it looks ridiculous. And that's why people argued about it. But, you know, that gap between what's fair and what's currently, you know, allowed in the eyes of the law became very... Um, uh, um, the other thing that stays with me about that period is the aesthetics, which I suppose is one of the reasons I was drawn to in the first place. I mean, I just love the architecture and all the sort of pictures and the art and everything of that period is is still, I think, a high point to lots of people, you know, that architecture. Yeah, I loved sort of being transported to all of that and um, just imagining, you know, what they're all wearing and what the yeah, buildings too. all look like. And yeah, that's really fun. Um, I was curious, I know you mentioned Ooh. that you, or maybe this was before we started recording, that um, yeah. you're sort of researching and um, diving yes. into your next project. Um, so I have two questions. First, what, yes. um, oops, what are you working on next and is there anything you've been reading lately that you'd want to recommend to listeners sure well one thing i'm actually it's another female history but it's actually the story of three sisters who start off uh, in sort of belle epoque france and it's tracing them from being painted by Renoir as little girls after the second world war so it's a totally different period but um it has uh, you know, some female bent. And, and and to that end, I've been reading um, lots of things, but the things that stood out 
that have provided me with much sort of interest very recently are Stefan's V, The World of Yesterday. Do you know that? Um, no. Which in translation, it, it's a story of, it's his memoir of life in Europe um, before the Second World War. And it's really, what I love about history is, as I think you can tell, is being transported to another era and really trying to understand what it was like to live in it. And he's brilliant on that. He takes you back to the Europe before the First World War and before the Second World War, uh, Second World War and just describes a different world. You know, things like before the First World War, which I didn't really, hadn't really thought about. You know, no one had passports. Everyone could just go anywhere. You just pitched up if you wanted to. And he was he's just some wonderful, beautifully written sort of, personal story that tells you a lot about sort of global politics at the time um very sad and he also wrote a novel that i read called beware of pity uh, these things are all translated from the german but I, I really recommend them they're kind of wonderful yeah i'll have to check that out i feel the same way i i um love just getting transported to a different time mm. and so different than you know certain classes and school where you just get lists of dates and who was king at the time and what well, battles right. were going and, on and, and we love what's different and then also what's the same you know what are the eternal constants is the yes. other great fascination for us all isn't it yeah I love that um well I just enjoyed this book so much and I hope um listeners go pick up the Duchess Countess um I hope librarians order it for their libraries and I must agree, I really hope that we see an adaptation at some <laughs> point because I would love to visually see all of this come to life. Uh, but thank you so much for coming on. It was really wonderful getting, oh, getting thank to speak you with so you, much Catherine. Having really fun chat. Really interesting. Thank you. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. And there you'll also find a link to our new online bookshop. Um, a Bookish Home has teamed up with the new organization Bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores. And if you'd like, you can browse books by authors who have been guests on A Bookish Home. I'm also sharing there all of the books mentioned on the podcast, books I've been reading lately, and other recommendations. It's a really wonderful site to browse and look through books. And if you make a purchase, it supports a bookish home and independent bookstores. So it's a win-win. So if you want to check that out directly, it's bookshop.org slash shop slash a bookish home. And you'll also find that at abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.